This episode contains depictions of violence that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. hit the mic <laughs> of course. new setup for me there's, a lot, there's gonna be a lot of bangs and maybe i'll sound a little more echoey guys i moved yeah and it's such a cute house and you have a new friend new family member yes um i finally got my familiar <laughs> and i'm just so happy <laughs> yeah so gavin and i bought a home we moved in on New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and uh, we've really settled in. Already like hosted a tiny little shindig for my birthday here, which you were at. Mm-hmm. It was um, fun. Yeah, and that's when we that's when we posted um mm-hmm. to social media if you guys saw that story on Instagram. But um, speaking of Instagram, yeah, there was just somebody who commented on our latest post asking where we went. We were on a break. <laughs> <laughs> Longer than we uh, said. In- yeah, initially intended, but I think it was a well-deserved break. Yeah, it was a, a well-deserved break. And honest, I don't know, the, the first month of this year so far... I think it's just still an extension of 2021 for me because <laughs> I got sick yeah. <laughs> and then it's just, I don't know. I haven't had the exciting things that you've had, but I've had stuff. So yeah. it's been nice to kind of go into February now. The first of February. Yeah. Today new is stall. the first that we're recording. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this will go out the second. Mm-hmm. And um, so happy Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day. Happy (laughs) Chinese New Year. Happy Imbolg. We've got, it's a lot. It is a lot all at once. Um, Yeah, yeah, we're just, we are wishing you all a lot of happy. And if you're, and if there's not a lot of happy for you right now, we hope it'll come soon. And speaking of happy, let's get into our topic. (laughs) It's not so happy. <laughs> it is. It's a. It's a. It's a heavy one. It's information heavy. Well, uh, yeah, people love our ethical witchcraft episodes. This is yeah. an ethical. This is part of our ethical series. Um. So yeah, this is what we're gonna do. <laughs> I. You know. I think I'm excited. It's a good way to start off the year. I think it's a good way after a break to almost. Not reintroduce ourselves, be like, just so you know, y'all, this is this is us. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is what we're aware of and where yep. we stand. Um yep. and because I think it just it's needed. I feel like we just had Holocaust Remembrance Day. Mm-hmm. Um there was fuck, where yeah. was that? There was someone who tried who uh ha- held people hostage. Um Oh, I'm blanking on where that was now. But and then Whoopi Goldberg had to apologize for saying that the 
war wasn't about, right? It just there it's been a topic. It's been a topic and especially if you're if you're in the US, not to mm-hmm. stutter over that. Um Yeah. It's very prevalent. So uh indeed. Yeah. So, uh I we'll just go right into it. Yeah. So let's do it. As you can see or hear or have read, we are covering white supremacy in Norse paganism. But we really want to get into what exactly white supremacy is and how it's kind of come to be the power that is today, like why it matters as a topic to even be talking about now. Mm-hmm. Um before even going into the paganism part because because it's important. So for anyone not in the know, white supremacy is the belief that white people are superior to those of other races and because of that should dominate them. The belief favors the maintenance and defense of any power and privilege held by white people. It has roots in the now discredited doctrine of scientific racism and was a key justification for European colonialism. Now, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but did we say through what lens we're talking about white supremacy. I know like it's going to be in the title, but I don't know, some people who have their podcast on autoplay. In Norse paganism? Yeah, white supremacy yeah. in the North. Yeah, okay. Did we yeah. already say it? I just, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, we're not just talking about white supremacy like in general, because holy crap, how do you do an episode of that? Like just one. But... Right, it's... The, so speaking- this is... It's kind of a backstory history of it and why it has become prevalent. Gotcha. Yeah. If that yeah, makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That's cool, not cool, cool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so different forms of white supremacy put forth different conceptions of who is considered white, though the main example generally is light skinned, blonde haired, blue eyed traits most common in Northern Europe, um, which are pseudoscientifically viewed. And we'll get into that, too, but as being part of the Aryan race. So in academic usage, particularly in critical race theory or intersectionality, white supremacy can also refer to a social system in which white people enjoy structural advantages or privilege over other ethnic groups on both a collective and individual level, despite formal legal equality. And then as a political ideology, it imposes and maintains cultural, social, political, historical, and or institutional domination by white people and non-white supporters. And this ideology has been put into effect through socioeconomic and legal structures, such as the Atlantic slave trade, Jim Crow Mm -hmm. laws in the United States, the white Australia uh, policies from the 1890s to the Mm mid-1970s, and apartheid in South Africa. And that is not an exhaustive list. That is to- so not exhaustive. <laughs> uh, and in addition, the that ideology is embodied in the uh, white power social movement. And since the early 1980s, the white power movement has been committed to overthrowing the United States government and establishing a white ethno state using paramilitary tactics, which we are seeing. Yeah, so um, that's the intro. So I'm going to cover a little history. So more backstory, but I'm going to get more into the history of everything. So white supremacy has ideological foundations that date back to at least the 17th century scientific racism. 
which is the predominant paradigm of human variation that helped shape international relations and racial policy from the latter part of the Age of Enlightenment until the 20th century. So white supremacy was dominant in the U.S. both before and after the American Civil War. And it persisted for decades um, after the Reconstruction era, which was roughly from 1863 to 1877. And in the antebellum South, this included the holding of African-Americans in chattel, which means held as legal property of another, which, mm-hmm. <laughs> i.e. slavery, mm-hmm. in which 4 million of them were denied freedom. So the Civil War is a huge topic that I think everyone more or less has a general, like, surf, at least surface understanding of. But the outbreak... Definitely in the U.S. I don't know the Civil other War. countries that they have. Say that again? I don't know that um, other countries necessarily get... History. Oh, yeah. I guess I'm speaking to, like, if you're a U.S. resident or a U.S. citizen, US you kind of... Period. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, honestly, there are going to be U.S citizens and residents that don't know much about the civil war so we'll get a little into it um so the outbreak of the civil war saw the desire to uphold white supremacy being cited as a cause for state secession and the formation of the confederate states of america so there's like a group of people were like yo we're white we want to stay important we're going to secede um and that's like their most important thing to them that was the most important thing to them yeah it was basically that's kind of why it just like pisses me off when someone you know is like yeah the confederacy (laughs) and it's they think it's more of like this culture of the south that they're defending it's like no you're you're defending white supremacy yeah they 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 skip over like all of it and hone on on one flag that was a confederate flag for a very short period of time exactly It's not even they had like, other flags. <laughs> they had other flags and they just chose the one. I don't know if they like they're like mm, red. I like it. Pretty. Little, little pretty. Where it's we'll stick to that. Yeah. Um I may be wrong, but I think it might have just been like one of their war flags. It wasn't even like the flag that would have been their flag if they had won the war. Yeah, no, it wouldn't have. But anyways, um so then there is the Naturalization Act of 1790. Uh, which limited U.S. citizenship to white people only. And in some parts of the U.S., many people who are considered non-white were disenfranchised, barred from government office, and prevented from holding most government jobs well into the second half of the 20th century. Um, so, obviously, government laws were not shaped to like basically anyone that wasn't white. The majority of the U.S. being a country. Mm-hmm. So the denial of social and political freedom to these minorities continued into the 20th century. Sorry, my cat just like jumped <laughs> on my lap and he insisted on being up on his perch. Um, <laughs> so he just like He's he grazed okay. past the mic so that might <laughs> you might have heard him. Um, OK. So, yeah, so the denial of social and political freedom to minorities continued into the mid 20th century, um, which resulted in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, sociolo- uh, sociologist Steven Kleinberg has stated that U.S. immigration laws prior to 1965 
clearly, quote, declared that Northern Europeans are a superior subspecies of the white race, unquote. Yikes. Yeah. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 opened entry to the U.S. to non-Germanic groups and significantly altered the demographic mix in the U.S. as a result, which, honestly, until research for this episode, I didn't even know. Yeah. Um, 16 U.S. states banned interracial marriage through anti uh, oh my gosh, miscegenation, I don't know Misseg- how to pronounce this. Uh, Mis- miscegenation, right? Yes. Miscegenation? Yeah. <laughs> it's a big word. <laughs> Bigger than me. Um, through anti-miscegenation laws until 1967, when these laws were invalidated by the Supreme Court of the United States decision in Loving v. Virginia. And that was a I'm big sure deal. Yeah, I'm sure some of you on social media ha- might have seen like the hashtag like loving day. That was the day that loving won and pretty much legalized interracial marriage. Uh-huh. And many interracial couples celebrate that to this day, that particular day. So these mid-century gains had a major impact on white Americans' political views. Segregation and white racial superiority, which had been publicly endorsed in the 1940s, became suddenly minority views within the white community by the mid-1970s and continued to decline into the 90s. Um, and it pulled like in single digit percentages in the 90s. So like mm-hmm. very incremental view. Mm-hmm. So after the mid 1960s, white supremacy remained an important ideology to the American far right. I'm not going to say like every right. We're talking about the far right. Um, you know, please, I'm not going to be like, oh, if you're a Republican, you're immediately no, no, no. racist. This is no, no, no. Specifically far right. We're talking about, yeah. Just like exactly. we know there is far left and that mm-hmm. is not necessarily any better. Yeah, exactly. Another, basically another component to the problem of this divisive nation, yeah. <laughs> the far left and the far right. Yeah. Um, but anyways, so according to Kathleen um, Bellew, a historian of race and racism in the U.S., white militancy shifted after the Vietnam War from supporting the existing racial order to a more radical position, mm-hmm. um, self-described as white power or white nationalism. And it was committed to overthrowing the U.S. government and establishing a white homeland. So these anti-government militia organizations are one of three major uh, strands of violent right-wing movements in the United States, with white supremacist groups such as the KKK, neo-Nazi organizations, and racist skinheads, Mm -hmm. and a religious fundamentalist movement such as Christian Identity being the other two. So many believe that the outcomes of the twin, uh, excuse me, the 2016 United States presidential election reflect ongoing challenges with white supremacy. So as said by um, Richard Hayson, legal scholar, quote, there certainly were hate groups before the internet and social media, but with social media, it just becomes easier to organize, mm-hmm. to spread the word, for people to know where to go, it could be to raise money or it could be to engage in attacks on social media. Some of the activity is virtual. Some of it is in a physical place. 
social media has lowered the collective action problems that individuals who might want to be in a hate group would face. You can see that there are people out there like you. That's the dark side of social media. Unquote. Big sign. Yeah. Hayson said it very, very well. Just right there. Um, So as of 2018, there are over 600 white supremacy organizations recorded in the U.S. Those are the ones that are recorded. Why? Like, that's a ginormous number. Of course, this isn't secluded just to the U.S. Mm -hmm. In 2007, it was claimed that Russian neo-Nazis accounted for half of the world's total. Fuck. Half of the world's total white supremacist groups are Russian neo-Nazis. I'm actually shocked that it wasn't the U.S., honestly. But, like... Right? We must be a close second. (laughs) We gotta be. I know. I I refuse to believe. Um, (laughs) According to a 2012 annual report of Germany's Interior Intelligence Service, the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution... Wow, I would love to, like, work for a department called that. It's just, like, so (laughs) grand. Right. All right. So... This intelligence service, at the time, there were 26,000 right-wing extremists living in Germany. Again, this is in 2012, Mm -hmm. including 6,000 neo-Nazis. And there are many others across many other countries. Right. Like, we will be focusing, like, we we focus, like, this history in the U.S., um, but (laughs) it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It is. It's everywhere. And and apparently in Russia, it's really, <laughs> it's, it's really in Russia. in Russia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because part of the history of white supremacy deals with obviously uh, World War II. <laughs> and now, of course, people are questioning if there's going to be a World War III. Um, mm. it's a whole, whole other topic. Just, just another challenge for Russia. millennials to face, you know? Yeah. No big deal. Yeah. Just... Two recessions under our belt before the age of 40. We're fine. Totally fine. We're good. <laughs> We're the workforce. <laughs> um, so how can we talk about white supremacy without talking about Nazism? Mm. Because this is where the white supremacy and paganism really start to come together. They blend into their own fun little thing. And obviously it's not strictly paganism, but ideas from paganism. So the eugenicist Madison Grant argued in his 1916 book, The Passing of the Great Race, that the Nordic race had been responsible for most of humanity's great achievements and that admixture was race suicide. Yikes. Already we all know this is not correct. I mean, I I hope we all know this. So in this book, Europeans who are not of Germanic origin, but have Nordic characteristics such as blonde or red hair and blue or green or gray eyes were considered to be a Nordic admixture and suitable for Aryanization. And this thinking is what carried over into Nazism. So Nazism is the ideology and practices associated with the one Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Uh, which I'm not going to go into all their names. I know one is the National Socialist. Huh. Okay, I want to try to say this long ass. Uh, okay. The, Na- in German? Na- <laughs> yeah, the, the, do it. 
I'm going to embarrass myself to our German listeners. And I know you guys are out there because some of y'all have submitted to listener stories. So feel free to laugh at me. The National Socialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei. <laughs> or the National Socialist <laughs> German Workers Party. <laughs> Let us know how close she got. (laughs) I feel like I got it better, like, in Deutsch. Maybe that's, like, the one word. (laughs) (laughs) The Deutsch. I just really lost in the beginning, found my way in the middle, and then lost my way again at the end. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting language. It is very different. It's a really cool language. My dad has been learning it the past few years because he... Before COVID, he used to do a lot of um, work trips, actually, to Mm. Tübingen, specifically, but other parts of Germany as well. So he was starting to kind of learn conversational German. Uh Um, So, yeah, it's a really cool language. Mm -hmm. Very, very similar to Dutch, too, which I'm more familiar with hearing Dutch than German. And obviously there's differences, but... Anywho, uh, so... Nazism, in case you were curious, during Hitler's time, wasn't called Nazism. It was frequently referred to as Hitlerism, at least by the Germans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the later related term, neo-Nazism, is applied to other far-right groups with similar ideas which formed after the collapse of the Nazi regime. And then, oh, this is where the other part was supposed to be. I don't, you want to give that name a try again? Or we'll just call it NSDAP? National Socialistic Deutsche Arbeiterpartei. Partei. Partei. So the term Nazi was in use before the rise of the NSDAP as a colloquial and derogatory word for a backwards farmer or peasant characterizing an awkward and clumsy person or a yokel. And in this sense, the word Nazi was a um, uh, kind of a, a term, another term for a German male name, Ignaz, which is a, a variation of the name Ignatius. Oh. That makes sense. Yeah. So Nazism is a form of fascism with disdain for liberal democracy and the parliamentary system and like shit ton of other stuff. It incorporates fervent anti-Semitism, anti-communism, scientific racism, and the use of eugenics into its creed. Its extreme nationalism originated in pan-Germanicism and the ethno-nationalist neo-pagan Volkish movement, which again... My German is not great, so I do apologize for not saying it right. Um, And the Volkisch movement had been a prominent aspect of German nationalism since the late 19th century, and it was strongly influenced by the Freikorps paramilitary groups that emerged after Germany's defeat in World War I. Nazism subscribed to pseudoscientific theories of a racial hierarchy and social Darwinism, identifying the Germans, again, as part of what the Nazis regarded as an Aryan or Nordic master race. It aimed to overcome social divisions and create a homogeneous German society based on racial purity, which represented a people's community. And this is a big word. Volks. 
Volks, not the German, I mean, not the Dutch G. Volksgemeinschaft? I don't know. That's my probably better try. than what I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> the Nazis aim to unite all Germans living in historically German territory as well as gain additional lands for German expansion under the doctrine of Liebentrom and include those whom they deemed either community aliens or inferior races. Oof. Exclude. Did I say exclude or include? Exclude. Those. Exclude, yeah. Okay. So the term national socialism arose out of attempts to create a nationalist redefinition of socialism as an alternative to both Marxist international socialism and free market capitalism, which this, you know, I'm talking about Nazi times. These terms are starting to come up again today. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. write that Mm -hmm. down in your book to keep an eye on. Uh, Nazism rejected the Marxist concepts of class conflict and universal equality, opposed cosmopolitan inter- internationalism and sought to convince all parts of the new German society to subordinate uh, subordinate their personal interests to the common good, accepting political interest as the main priority of economic organization, which tended to match the general outlook of collective. There's a lot of fucking isms. There's a lot of. There's a lot of isms. So the precursor to the Nazi party, the Pan-German Nationalist and Anti-Semitic German Workers Party, was founded on January 5th, 1919. By the early 1920s, the party was renamed the National Socialist German Workers Party to attract workers away from left-wing parties such as the Social Democrats and the Communists. And uh, Mr. Hitler assumed <laughs> I love how they the like organization. Un- I love how they understood buzzwords back then. Absolutely. I think I feel <laughs> Let's like just add workers into our title so that the workers yes. think that we're for them. <laughs> I bet you buzzwords go back to like the beginning of human language. I mean, and like yeah. getting along with people. Power, the history of the power. Of, oh, Listen, <laughs> if I had the time, I would love to start like a marketing podcast that just talks about like the origins of marketing and how they're reflected today because it's so fucking interesting you should just whenever you have time randomly put out a little episode right when i retire at 80 it's fine (laughs) (laughs) because millennials (laughs) i don't know just do like one every few months (laughs) people will still like it they really do enjoy their buzzwords um yeah Now, the National Socialist Program, or as it became known, 25 Points, was adopted in 1920 and called Mm -hmm. for a greater Germany that would deny citizenship to Jews or those of Jewish descent, which also supporting land reform and the nationalization of some industries. So they won the greatest share of the popular vote in the two uh, Reichstag general elections of 1932 making them the largest party in legislature by far, albeit still short of an outright majority. Because none of the other parties were willing or able to put together a coalition government, Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany in 1933 by President Paul von Hindenburg through the support and... um, You know what? I don't know this word. Connivance. I thought I'd look it up, but I never did. Conniving probably conniving of traditional conniving? i'm assuming 
I mean, support in something of traditional mm-hmm. conservative nationalists who believed that they could control him and his party. I wonder if like connivance is kind of like cunning. Probably. You know, I like just they always... were like supporting and they were like, you know, manipulating. Willingness to secretly allow or be involved in wrongdoing, especially an immoral or illegal act. I mean, I feel like that really makes sense here. Yeah. Yeah. Connivance. Oh, I'm adding that to my vocabulary. Right? Mm. So with the use of emergency presidential decrees by Hindenburg and a change in the Weimar Constitution, which allowed the cabinet to rule by direct decree, bypassing both Hindenburg and the Reichstag, the Nazis soon established a one-party state. With like, Which, like, holy shit. I know. Honestly, I didn't know a lot of this. I knew about, like, World War II Nazis, like, when, when, it, when they were up and running. Right. But not so much the formation, and it is right, wildly... Like the, the brewing of it. Yeah. hmm So one of the most significant ideological influences on the Nazis was the German nationalist Johann Gottlieb Fichte. Fichte? 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 There's an E at the end. Fichte? Fichte. I feel like, doesn't German, like, when there's an E at the end, sometimes it's almost pronounced like an A, like a? Uh. I think so. Right. Again, it's one of those things that like when I I think of Dutch, I I can't remember all of a sudden which is which. So then I go, I don't know. Uh, But we'll go with Fichte, whose works had served as an inspiration to Hitler and other Nazi party members, including uh, Dietrich Eckhart and Arnold Funk. And Fichte's nationalism, born during France's occupation of Berlin was populist and opposed to traditional elites spoke of the need for a people's war. So Mm. seeds were already planted for something like that. Volks, Volksrieg, and put forth a concept similar to those which the Nazis adopted. The Nazis, let me just say, they they adopted quite a bit. Everything about them was adopted, appropriated, really. I was going to (laughs) say, adopted is a very nice word for it. Yeah. Stole. Stole. They really did. Fichte promoted German exceptionalism and stressed the need for the German nation to purify itself, including purging purging the German language of French words, a policy that the Nazis undertook upon their rise to power. I never knew that. Well, Which is interesting. Yeah, I I actually did know that because I know about, like, I don't know if it was part of Germany or all of it that used to be kind of controlled by the French. Way back in the day, like we're talking medieval or something. I don't know. I could be yeah. wrong. But that's also why, where they get their pronunciation of their R's. Yeah. That guttural R. Honestly, if you listen to, I, to me, it's both German and Dutch. It sounds a bit like English. It sounds a bit like French. And it sounds a bit like Norwegian, Swedish mm-hmm. kind of a link. Because it truly is like a mix of everything that was around them. Mm-hmm. So that totally makes sense. So they scrapped all the French words. Um, another important figure in pre-Nazi Volkish thinking was Willem Heinrich Reil, 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 whose work Land und Lut, Land and People, uh, which was written between 
1857 and 1863, collectively tied the organic German Volk to its native landscape and nature, a pairing which stood in stark opposition to the mechanical and materialistic civilization, which was then developing as a result of industrialization. And bringing this in is kind of where we begin to see with pagans nowadays, people living in Mm -hmm. today's world, very tech, mm-hmm. a techie world, wanting mm-hmm. that simpler life and trying. This yes. is this is like, how it was for the Nazis. This is how like that got going back. In. Let's go back to our roots. Exactly, exactly. So same same thinking that people do have today, but albeit with very different ideas mm-hmm. that go along mm-hmm. with it. Uh, geographers Friedrich Ratzel and Karl Hossoffer borrowed from Real's work as did Nazi ideologues and uh, Alfred Rosenberg and Paul, we don't need to know their name, both of whom employed some of Real's philosophy in arguing that each nation state was an organism that required a particular living space in order to survive. They're very like, Germany is just this beautiful and we need to preserve it and we need to make it special. Mm-hmm. So Volkish nationalism denounced soulless materialism, individualism, and secularized urban industrial society while advocating a superior society based on ethnic German folk culture and German blood. It denounced foreigners and foreign ideas and declared that Jews, Freemasons, I didn't know that, and others were (laughs) traitors to the nation and unworthy of inclusion. Volkish nationalism saw the world in terms of natural law and romanticism, and it viewed societies as organic, extolling the virtues of rural life, condemning the neglect of tradition and the decay of morals, denounced the destruction of the natural environment, and condemned cosmopolitan cultures such as Jews and Romani. The first party that attempted to combine nationalism and socialism was the uh, German Workers' Party, the Austria-Hungary. German Workers' Party. In 1893, the German politician Friedrich Newman formed the National Social Association, which aimed to combine German nationalism and a non-Marxist form of socialism together. The attempt turned out to be futile, and the idea of linking nationalism with socialism quickly became equated with anti-Semites, extreme German nationalists, and the Volkish movement in general. During the era of the German Empire, Volkish nationalism was overshadowed by both Prussian patriotism and the Federalist tradition of its various component states. And then we get to the events of World War I, beginning of the 1900s, including the end uh, of the Prussian monarchy in Germany. It resulted in a surge of revolutionary Volkish nationalism. The Nazis supported such revolutionary Volkish nationalist policies, and they claimed that their ideology was influenced by the leadership and policies of German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, who was instrumental in founding the German Empire. The Nazis declared that they were dedicated to continuing the process of creating a unified German nation-state that Bismarck had begun um, and really wanted to achieve. And while Hitler was supportive of Bismarck's creation of the German Empire, he was critical of his moderate domestic policies. And he had supported um, something that was basically like lesser Germany 
which excluded Austria versus the pan-German area, which is what the Nazis advocated, Hitler stated that Bismarck's attainment of um, the lesser Germany was the highest achievement, and Bismarck could have achieved within the limits possible at that time. Hitler was both a fan and critic, basically, is what I'm trying to say, of Mr. Bismarck. And then, of course, we have the famous Mein Kampf, Hitler's book, mm-hmm. which literally translates to My Struggle, which was published 1925-26. Hitler presented himself as a second Bismarck. So this guy really impacted him. He also outlined the anti-Semitism and anti-communism at the heart of his political philosophy, as well as his disdain for the representative democracy and his belief in Germans' right to territorial expansion. During his youth in Austria, Hitler was politically influenced by Austrian pan-Germanist uh, Germanist proponent uh, Georg Ritter von Schoner. Schonerer. Schonerer. Who had uh, advocated radical German nationalism, anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism, anti-Slavic sentiment, and anti-Hadsburg views. A lot of anti-people. You know, man, what are you for? Oh, right, white people. <laughs> German, the expansion of German rural land. Let us get back to our roots. <sighs> just so much. But anti. just the white people, just the white ones. But just the white ones. Just the white ones. So, Mr. von Schoenerner and his followers, Hitler adopted for the <laughs> Nazi movement the Heil greeting. So that's where he got that from. And as well as the Fuhrer Fuhr, Fuhr title. I don't know why I have such a hard time with that word. Fuhrer. And the model mm-hmm. of absolute party leadership. So Hitler was also impressed by the populist anti-Semitism and the anti-liberal bourgeois agitation of Karl Luger, who, as the mayor of Vienna during Hitler's time in the city, used a kind of... Um, a rabble-rousing style of speech that appealed to the wider masses. And that's, again, we kind of see that with Hitler when he gave his speeches. He really got a mm. crowd going. Yeah, you know who else got a crowd going? It was a piece of shit. And I don't understand how. He never said much. <laughs> he was just the he same just things the... over and over and over. But you know what those things were? Buzzwords. Buzzwords, yes. Buzzwords. Fuck. White supremacists really like their buzzwords. So I put like a lot of detail on this. I'm going to see. So Hitler praised (laughs) obviously people that came before him, but he criticized some for not applying a racial doctrine against the Jews and the Slavs. He, the Slavs. Did I say Slavs? Slavs. Um, Slavs. Slavs. Slavic. Yeah. So the concept of the Aryan race, which the Nazis promoted, we've already talked about it, stems from the racial theories asserting that Europeans are the descendants of Indo-Iranian settlers, people of ancient India and the ancient Persia. Okay. I'm kind of like, am I, what? Mm, Okay. Yeah. it, It evolves for them, apparently. So proponents of this theory base their assertion on the fact that words in European languages and words in Indo-Iranian languages have similar pronunciations and meanings. Uh, <laughs> Johann Gottfried Herder argued that the Germanic people held close racial connections to the ancient 
Indians and ancient Persians, who he claimed were advanced peoples that possessed a great capacity for wisdom, nobility, restraint, and science. And then they, people did, after... Just question, question. Do they think that these Indo-Iranian and ancient... Were white? Like, that, were, that they were white? I don't think they thought they were white. I think they, they saw a power in them and then realized, oh, they're not white. What about the Nordic people? And then blended. Gotcha. <laughs> Sound. So that's what they do. They blend. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> it basically they viewed it as, so there, we have these Indo-Iranians, the Aryan race, and then against them, the only other opposition to that was what they considered the parasitic Semitic culture. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well. Not Jesus. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not so much. <laughs> not so much. <laughs> so Arian mysticism claimed that Christianity originated in Arian religious traditions and that Jews had usurped the legend from Arians. Um, and then an English-born German proponent of racial theory supported notions of Germanic supremacy and anti-Semitism in Germany. Um, he wrote a book called The Foundations of the 19th Century, where he praised Germanic peoples for their creativity and idealism while asserting that the Germanic spirit was threatened by a, quote, Jewish spirit of selfishness and materialism. He used his thesis to promote uh, monarchical conservatism while denouncing democracy, liberalism, and socialism. The book mm. became popular. Especially, guess where? Germany. Uh. In 1923, Chamberlain met, and that was the author, Chamberlain. Um, he met with Hitler, whom he admired as a leader of the rebirth of the free spirit. Oh, my God. I already see parallels. I mean, I already did before, but like free spirit. So many mm -hmm. of the far right people are talk about freedom. Wanting yeah. to be like, I, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we get Madison Grant, who wrote the book, The Passing of a Great Race, advocated Nordicism and proposed that a eugenics program should be implemented in order to preserve the purity of the Nordic race. This is the blend. This is where we, I think is where Hitler gotcha. got the blend. Here we go. Yeah. After reading the book, Hitler called it, quote, my Bible. Yikes. Yeah. In Germany, the belief that Jews were economically exploiting Germans became prominent due to the, um, there was a, a huge amount of, of Jewish people who came into wealth and they were in prominent positions upon the unification of Germany in 1871. They were doing well Honestly, for themselves. They were like jealous. They were jealous. They were very jealous. They were jealous. literally just en envy envious mm -hmm. of what the Jewish community had. And from 1871 to the early 20th century, German Jews were overrepresented in Germany's upper and middle classes while they were underrepresented in Germany's lower classes, particularly in the fields of agriculture and industrial labor. German Jewish financiers and bankers played a key role in fostering Germany's economic growth from 1971 to 1913, and they benefited. 1871. 1871. Yeah. They didn't time travel. 1871 to wow. 1913 uh, and they obviously benefited enormously from this boom so they were jealous yeah. of, of them but also they were it was for germany like 
yeah, but they were like they helped it's, them. It's um this like vicious like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like thanks for helping us out, but fuck you. Yeah. It's on a much smaller scale because it's not really that comparable, but like how so many people hate California. Like mm-hmm. politically, but at the same time economically, the country yeah. kind of needs California. Yeah. Again, very, very small very, difference. Very loose, but very, I see very it. loose. Um, but I mean, the the Jewish people of Germany, all they did was booster Germany's well-being while they were there, while they were allowed. In 1908, amongst the 29 wealthiest German families, um, which they had fortunes of up to 55 million marks at the time, um, five. Five of the families were Jewish, and the Rothschilds were the second wealthiest German family. We know that name. Yeah. The predominance of Jews in Germany's banking, commerce, and industry sectors during this time period was very high, even though the Jewish people were estimated to account for only 1% of the population of Germany. 1%. And they contributed that much to their economic wealth. There's just a lot of really smart business people in the jewish community i they're just they're smart in general i mean there's there i, mean, I don't yeah, know what that would be about them i think there is something it, i'm well there's a difference right because there's a difference of people who um ethnically identify as jewish there's people who religiously mm-hmm. identify as jewish yeah. um and that is so varied and complex in and of itself yeah absolutely um, which I, of course, I'd love to get um, the Jew witch herself on for an interview this year. That's Ooh, one yeah. of my goals. <sighs> Do you hear my dog hacking in the background? Oh, is that what that is? <laughs> yes. I just thought it was like Graham, like banging a bag of spaghetti against the counter. <laughs> it's kind of like what it Ooh. sounds like. <laughs> I don't think the Italian in him would allow that. <laughs> no it's domino okay so the 1873 stock market crash and the ensuing depression resulted in a spat of attacks on alleged jewish economic dominance in germany and anti-semitism increased it was during this time period in the 1870s that german volkish nationalism began to adopt the anti-semitic and racist themes and it was it also adopted a number of racial or, sorry, radical right uh, pol- political movements. Which I'm sure were racial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you're not wrong there. No. Probably. <laughs> radical anti-Semitism was promoted by prominent, prominent advocates of Volkish nationalism, including Eugene Diedrichs, Paul de Lagarde, and Julius Langbein. De Lagarde called the Jews a Bacillus, the carriers of decay, who pollute every national culture and destroy all faiths with their materialistic liberalism, and he called for the extermination of the Jews. Y'all are just haters. For no reason. Like I know they felt they had reasons, but there were no reasons. Uh, no, nothing that stood on actual, like, solid ground. No logic. Like, no, no logic. Exactly. Just they're living on logical fallacies. Absolutely. He called for a war of annihilation against the Jews, and his genocidal policies were later published by the Nazis 
and given to soldiers on the front during World War II. Uh, one anti-Semitic ideologue of the period, Frederick Lang, even used the term National Socialism to describe his own anti-capitalist take on the Volkish National Template. And now back to Bismarck, the Nazis claimed that Bismarck was unable to complete the German national unification because Jews had infiltrated the German parliament, and they claimed that their abolition of parliament had ended this obstacle to unification. And uh, now here's a fun fact, not really a fun fact, but interesting to note, Hitler Mm. and other Nazi legal theorists were inspired by America's institutional racism and saw it as a model to follow. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yes. In particular? Interesting. Hmm. 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 They saw it as a model for the expansion of territory. Very American. Yep. Yep. Uh, and the elimination of indigenous inhabitants therefrom. Yep. Again. Been there, mm-hmm, done that. Mm-hmm. For laws denying full citizenship for blacks. Mm-hmm. Check. Yep. yep. Which they wanted to implement and also against Jews and for racist immigration laws banning some races. Hmm. So. Wow, guys. So we inspired Hitler. How does that make us feel? Let, let that sit there for a little bit. I, I Honestly, I never knew that. I never knew that until research for this. And that was a really gross thing to find out. Yeah. I'm not surprised, but like, it's gross feeling. Yep. So in Mein Kampf, Hitler hailed America as the only contemporary example of a country with racist or volkish citizenship statutes in the 1920s and nazi lawyers made use of the american models in crafting laws for nazi germany u.s citizenship laws and anti-miscegenation laws directly inspired the two principal nuremberg laws the citizenship law and the blood law which were a pretty big deal during that time right now my turn sorry (laughs) <laughs> why do you have to be so thorough laura <laughs> it's just honestly honestly it's just a lot though. it's, it's a lot then there's so much more there's so 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 much more but like i feel like you have to get it you know mm-hmm. like you have to really mm-hmm. get it mm-hmm. yeah <sighs> so now that we understand how you know the origins of nazism and all that jazz Now I'm going to cover the Nazism effects and the Holocaust. So January 1933, Adolf Hitler is appointed Chancellor of Germany and the Nazis seize power. German leaders proclaim the rebirth of the Volks... Oh, fuck. Volkshemenschaft. People's community. Yeah. Is what that means. Also, um, I did not realize until re- until this research that folks meant people and that that's where the word folks comes from. Yeah. And so Volkswagen is literally just a people wagon. 
the people's wagon. <laughs> Just a lot of eye-opening moments. Some important, some not. Moving on. Okay, so people's community. Nazi policies divided the population into two groups. There was Volksenossen, which um, is national comrades. And they belonged to the Volkshemenschaft. And then there was the Hemenschaft's Fremd. Hemenschaft's Fremd, I think that's how it's said, which means community aliens. So basically those who did not belong mm-hmm. in the people's community. Enemies were divided into three groups. So these community aliens are the enemies, right? They're in, uh, in, uh, divided into three groups. The racial or blood enemies. These included Jews and Roma. Mm-hmm. Then there's the political op- opponents of Nazism, such as the Marxists, liberals, Christians, and the reactionaries, um, which basically were viewed as wayward national comrades. People who saw the light. <laughs> Oh, shit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And moral opponents, such as gay men, the work shy, and habitual criminals. So the latter two groups, um, the political opponents and the moral opponents, Hmm. they were to be sent to concentration camps for re-education with the aim of eventual absorption into the Volksheimenschaft which is, the pe- again, the people's community. Um, it's basically, like, just the people that they approve of, like, urine. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they consider those White two clubs. groups... Mm-hmm, they consider those two groups, like, salvageable, potentially, with this re-education. Mm-hmm. But then the racial enemies, like, they can't do really do anything in, mm-hmm. in the Nazis' eyes. Like, they're, you can't change a person's race, right? Right. So they could never belong to the people's community and they were to be removed from society that was the plan so the economic strain of the great depression um, in the 30s led protestant charities and some members of the german medical establishment to advocate compulsory sterilization of the incurable mentally and physically disabled people the nazis called lieben zu lieben life unworthy of life mm-hmm. I'm, i know i'm butchering all these words and i please forgive me so on july 14th 1933 um this is just a little later in the same year that adolf hitler w- became chancellor mm-hmm. the law for the prevention of hereditarily diseased offspring <laughs> i'm not even gonna try to say the german yeah, no. translation no. of that so there's <laughs> So there's that law, the sterilization law. Both of those were passed. The New York Times reported on December 21st of that year, 400,000 Germans were to be sterilized. There were 84,525 applications from doctors in the first year. The courts reached a decision in 64,499 of those cases and 56,244 were in favor of sterilization. 
Estimates for the number of involuntary sterilizations during the whole of the Third Reich range from 300,000 to 400,000. In October 1939, Hitler signed a euthanasia decree, backdated to September 1st, 1939, that authorized Reichslater Philipp Buller, the chief of Hitler's chancellery, and Karl Brandt, Hitler's personal physician, to carry out a program of involuntary euthanasia. He, like, literally decreed murder. murder. Yeah. Murder. Yeah. After the war, um, this is World War II, this program came to be known as Actian T4. So T4 was mainly directed at adults, but the euthanasia of children was also carried out. Be- Going to get into a lot of just facts here there's a lot of numbers and it's facts and it's sad and it's so sad um so between 1939 with that when that euthanasia decree went out and 1941 80 um 80,000 to 100,000 mentally ill adults in institutions were killed as were 5,000 children and 1,000 Jews who were also in institutions like, they're literally like, ugh, mentally ill people. Mm-hmm. Crap. Like, let's just literally wipe them out. Yeah. And when you think about it, those people in those institutions, sometimes it was for as minor mental challenges as dyslexia. Mm-hmm. You could have been sentenced to die for having dyslexia. Not to say that that person deserves to live more than someone who is right. severely mentally ill, but just so that people understand like the gravity of this. Or even people who were it just it wasn't understood, uh cerebral palsy. Completely one hundred percent there in their mind. Yep. But something but just, was physically different that Exactly. There they go. Institutionalized. Mm-hmm. So on this um the fifteenth of September, nineteen thirty five the Reichstag passed the Reich Citizenship Law and the Law for the Protection of German Blood and German Honor, known as the Nuremberg Laws, which Laura mentioned earlier. So um, the Reich Citizenship Law said that only those of German or kindred blood could be citizens. Mm-hmm. Anyone with three or more Jewish grandparents was classified as a Jew. The second law said marriages between Jews and subjects of the state of German or related blood are forbidden. So now they're not even counting German, uh, German Jews mm-hmm. as Germans. <laughs> right. They're not even subjects of the state anymore. No, they're tainted. Mm-hmm. Sexual relationships between them were also criminalized. Jews were not allowed to employ German women under the age of 45 in their homes. Which, I mean, I think we all know what that, like, tries to imply against Mm -hmm. Jewish people. Like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. And the laws were referred to Jews, but applied equally to the Roma and black Germans. I think everyone tends to forget about them. 
when they talk about oh, yeah. World War II and the Holocaust, like it wasn't just Jewish people. Yeah, we, I think that, you know, the number 6 million is brought up a lot mm-hmm. of the 6 million Jews, but there were so many more that suffered mm-hmm. like, like the Jews in Germany. Yeah. So by the end of 1934, 50,000 German Jews had left Germany. And by the end of 1938, approximately half the German, uh, pop, uh, Jew- German Jewish population had left. Among them, the conductor Bruno Walter, who fled after being told that the hall of the Berlin Philharmonic would be burned down if he conducted a concert there. So, I mean, things were brewing for a while. Things started getting really Mm -hmm. fucking serious. And people got out. Mm -hmm. Albert Einstein, who was in the U.S. when Hitler came to power, never returned to Germany. His citizenship was revoked, and he was expelled from the Kaiser Wilhelm Society and Prussian Academy of Sciences. Other Jewish scientists, including Gustav Hertz, lost their teaching positions and left the country. And on March 12, 1938, Germany annexed Austria. 90% of Austria's 176,000 Jews lived in Vienna. Mm -hmm. And they were now in danger. Yeah. So the SS and SA smashed shops and stole cars belonging to Jews. Austrian police stood by and some already wearing swastika armbands. Jews were forced to perform humiliating acts such as scrubbing the streets or cleaning toilets while wearing Teflon. Which, Teflon, I have, let me double check, but I'm fairly certain that Teflon is what they use to pray. There's, I think it's two boxes, one that they place on their head and one on their arm. And it's how they pray. They pray multiple times a day using this. So having them um, do anything other than mm-hmm. praying, wearing it, it's, I'm trying to think of what it would it's, be equivalent um, to. Like, it's not, I don't even see it as equivalent to, like, a a rosary. Like, it's so much more powerful to them than that. Yeah. It's, like, shame, like, shameful to use it for anything. Yeah. It's shaming, yeah, to use it for anything other than praying. Yeah. And, um. Shaming times, like, a thousand. Yeah. 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 I can't find the right, like, intense word. Mm -hmm. But around 7,000 Jewish businesses were Aryanized. And all the legal restrictions on Jews in Germany were imposed in Austria. On November 7th, 1938, uh, Herschel Grunspan, a Polish Jew, shot the German diplomat Ernst von Rath in the German embassy in Paris in retaliation for the expulsion of his parents and siblings from Germany. When von Rath died on November 9th, the synagogue and Jewish shops in Dessau were attacked. And this is known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. The organized massacre on November 9th through the 10th saw over, and this is 1938, saw over 7,500 Jewish shops out of 9,000, so the grand majority, Mm -hmm. looted and attacked in over 1,000 synagogues damaged or destroyed. Groups of Jews were forced by the crowd to watch their synagogues burn. In Bechsheim, um, they were made to dance around it, and in Laufheim, to kneel before it. And at least 90 Jews were murdered. 
the damage was estimated at 39 million Reichsmarks, uh, which with converted with inflation would be equivalent to um, 443 million 965,129 and 34 cents. Gotta add the 34 cents. <laughs> Can't forget the 34 cents. Yeah. We did the math. We gotta, <laughs> we gotta include it. So the police were not withdrawn. The regular police, Gestapo, um, SS, and SA all took part, although Heinrich Himmler was angry that the SS had joined in. I don't, which I don't get. All the rest did. <laughs> but I'm mad about the SS. Yeah. Yeah. Attacks took place in Austria, too. The extent of the violence shocked the rest of the world. Uh, between uh, November 9th and 16th, 30,000 Jews were sent to uh, Buchenwald, Dachau, and Sachsenhausen concentration camps. Many were released within weeks. Uh, by early 1939, 2,000 still remained in the camps. So German jury was held collectively responsible for restitution of the damage. They also had to pay an atonement tax of over a billion Reichsmarks. Insurance payments for damage to their property were confiscated by the government, which, like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. A decree on November 12th, 1938, barred Jews from most remaining occupations. Um, Kristallnacht pretty much marked the end of any sort of public Jewish activity and culture, and Jews stepped up their efforts to leave the country because it wasn't safe. It wasn't safe. They were put in a between a corner and a hard place, between the ocean and the devil. Like it was, they couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. They couldn't worship. They couldn't work. They couldn't even socialize. They like, couldn't live. They couldn't. Yeah, they like literally. It was everything short of, like, letting them breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland and thus marked what many regard as the beginning of World War II. At the end of um, 1941, the Germans began building extermination camps in Poland. Auschwitz II, Belszczyk, Chemlo, Majdanek, Sobibor, and Treblinka. Gas chambers had been installed by the spring or summer of 1942. By the end of 1942, most of the Jews in the general government area were dead. Um, The Jewish death toll in the extermination camps was over 3 million overall. Most Jews were gassed on arrival. On April 9th, Germany invaded Denmark and Norway and overran Denmark so quickly that they had no opportunity to form any sort of resistance. By June 1940, Norway was completely occupied. In late 1940, the country's 1,800 Jews were banned from certain occupations, and in 1941, all Jews had to register their property with the government. On November 26, 1942, 532 Jews were taken by police officers at four o'clock in the morning at, uh, to Oslo Harbor, where they boarded a German ship. Um, and then from Germany, they were sent by freight train to Auschwitz. In May 1940, Germany invaded the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Belgium, 
and France. From July 1942, over 107,000 Dutch Jews were deported. Only 5,000 survived the war. 5,000 out of 107,000. My grandpa's family hid some, a Jewish family in the walls of their house. The <gasps> wow, war. really? Wow. Yeah. I don't know how many were in the family, but that was one thing I always knew. Yeah. So um, most of these Dutch Jews were sent to Auschwitz. The first transport of 1,135 Jews left Holland for Auschwitz on July 15th, 1942. And between March 2nd and July 20th of 43, um, 34,313 Jews were sent in 19 transports to the Sobibor extermination camp where all but 18 are thought to have been gassed on arrival. Not only were people gassed on arrival at these camps, but they were also starved, put into forced labor, or even experimented on. And I feel like the, there is a difference. There were extermination camps and concentration camps. And obviously yes. extermination camps, you know what's going to go down there, but concentration yeah. camps, I think, are where some of that other stuff was slightly more prevalent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the experimentation, uh, the chief perpetrator of this barbaric and inhumane medical experimentation was Josef Mengele, and he lived from 1911 up to 79. Not sure so who Mengele, let him live. Mm, well, Mengele, who came to be known as the Angel of Death, performed a range of experiments on detainees. For example, in an effort to study eye color, he injected serum into the eyeballs of dozens of children, causing them excruciating pain and probably blinding them. Mm -hmm. He also injected chloroform into the hearts of twins to determine if both siblings would die at the same time and in the same manner. As, um, as 1944 came to a close and the defeat of Nazi Germany by the Allied forces seemed certain, the Auschwitz commandants uh, began destroying evidence of the horror that had taken place there. Buildings were torn down, blown up, or set on fire, and records were destroyed. When the Soviet army entered Auschwitz on January 27th, they found approximately 7,606 sick, uh, oh my god, 7,600 sick or emaciated de detainees who had been left behind barbed wire. Oh, and there's photos of that. Yeah. It's pretty haunting. The liberators also discovered mounds of corpses, hundreds of thousands of pieces of clothing and pairs of shoes, and seven tons of human hair that had been shaved from detainees before their liquidation. Um, and I know that one of the uses for that human hair was to weave the socks of the German soldiers. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They used it because it made it like they thought it made it more waterproof mm -hmm. to um, not like to help prevent trench feet, mm -hmm. I guess, if that actually worked or not. But like that's can you imagine you like being a German soldier and just knowing that your socks are made of the hair of a Jewish person that was like gassed or killed? If they or whatever. did know. Yeah, that's another interesting part. Like, I wonder if they did know. I, because I don't know. I mean, I know, like, even I mentioned, you know, 
propaganda, basically, that they sent out to people sure. um, who were fighting. But I don't know. My grandma, anytime she would talk about uh, what it was like during the war, because um, I know I mentioned it before, but she, she and my grandpa both grew up in the Netherlands. Um, so they were there during the Nazi occupation. And she would always recall, like, of course, you know, they'd be yelling at people. They were terrified of these Nazis, but also she saw so many of the younger ones just break down crying and then having mm. being reprimanded by some of the others that like, you got to keep going. You got to keep, and they, you could tell they didn't want to. Right. And I'm not saying all of them, you know, that was the case, but there were certainly some that were fighting internally. Um, yeah. And probably felt very stuck, but I don't, and and maybe they did like, know about this. I don't. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I just know that that is, if not the only use, that was definitely one of the major uses for the hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so according to some estimates, between 1.1 million to 1.5 million people, the vast majority of them Jews, died at Auschwitz during its years of operation. An estimated 70,000 to 80,000 Poles perished at the camp along with 19,000 to 20,000 Romas and smaller numbers of Soviet prisoners of war and other individuals. Yeah. And so those are pretty much just walked you through the horrors of not the Nazis yeah. during that era. Yeah. Which, of course, and begs. So, and honestly, like, so much more, though. Because exactly. we don't even go into every single thing that, like, Mengele did, and he wasn't the only physician doing experimentation he was just the most notorious yep. one yeah exactly there's you, someone could do a whole podcast on all of this with two hour episodes two days a week for years mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of information um which of course then you know we're looking at this in the perspective of how this has affected norse paganism you know, mm -hmm. and and the witchy lens that we tend to <laughs> that our podcast is based on. But again, to kind of talk about how it's gotten to Norse paganism, you do kind of have to understand the world of today and where it came from. Mm -hmm. Because it, when we talk about, you know, how do you handle it when you come across this, you have to know the history. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the paganism and how the Nazis especially used it and how it's being used today, um, I had earlier mentioned the Volkish movement, which obviously was used to bolster a white German state. Mm -hmm. And that movement basically rewrote history, drawing on folklore, such as that of the Brothers Grimm, medieval epics, and a dedication to racial white supremacy. Late 19th and early 20th century scholars simultaneously drew from and reinforced this racialized imagination of the medieval past. So this Volkish movement truly was an appropriation. Um, crucially, Wilhelm Grumbach's multi-volume work of the cultures of Teutons. I'm not going to say I can't say that. It imagined an ancient Germanic genealogy that ran from Tacitus through the Middle Ages. And again, this is imagined. 
it's fantasy work. And obviously, you know, the Grimm brothers are too. Yeah. So German scholarly work during the eve of the Third Reich then added to this idea of this these fantasies with authors like Gustav Neckel and Berhand, Bernhard Kummer uh, blaming socialism. Obviously, Jews and class revolutions for the decline of a Germanic race they saw descending from this Viking past. So they, they were like, if the show Vikings was a show then, like if everyone had TVs, they mm-hmm. only watched Vikings to get their Norse background. <laughs> that is it. Mm-hmm. That's all life was. And they were like, shit, fuck, yeah, we like that. Another German scholar, Otto Hoffler, who based his work on uh, the former Gron- Gronbach, wrote of the Mannerbunde, Mannerbunde, which the scholar Stephanie von Schern- Schnerbein has described as um, an all-male warrior associations in so-called primitive society. Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> Vikings. <laughs> His take on Mannerbunds would become used as an explanation of the past and current Germanic race and fueled the idea behind Nazi groups such as the SS and SA. After World War II, despite the defeat of the Axis powers, these ideas didn't go away. Rather, they saw a resurgence in specific circles, including various far-right neo-pagan groups like the Scandinavian Nordic Resistant Movement, uh, who were known for their neo-Nazi violence. And then Gronbuch's uh, multi-volume work translated and made available online through the internet and the works of his contemporaries um, have also influenced current far-right extremists in Europe and North America. Mm-hmm. Other neo-pagan groups often citing these sources are groups like the Odinists. Please, if you're in Norse paganism, know that. The Odinists are a far-right group. They practice on the belief that the barbaric warriors of medieval Northern Europe functioned as violent warriors, again, Vikings. Not to shit on the show. Let me just make that clear. It's it's a interesting show. It's just not super historical. <laughs> it's fantasy. It's TV. Yeah, people. it's TV. Um and Odinists, uh, they follow they basically think they're following Norse paganism. But um, Asatru, which is scanned, uh, the official Icelandic pagan religion, like it's official there, they're basically like, no, we don't acknowledge the Odinists. That's not what we are. So if you didn't know that, now you know that. But going back to the 1800s, there was a time of rampant colonialism by European powers. I mean, even prior to that, like 1800s really kind of ramped things up. Sweden looked across the waters to smaller nations with similar populations, such as Holland and Belgium, and debated if the Swedes should also try to colonize faraway parts of the world or risk being left behind. Nationalism was a growing trend across the continent as European countries used it to justify their invasions of territories in Africa and the Middle East. And so at the same time, Swedish nationalism also began to rise. One common way for nationalists to unite the Swedes was to tap into a romanticized version of the Viking ancestors who used, who themselves had successfully invaded and colonized many parts of Europe. Now, the big misconception, they didn't have the history 
in archaeology that we have today. We mm-hmm. now know that, yes, the Vikings, they did invade. They do all, do all these things, but they also had positive impacts as well. Um, not to say that they were a great people. Mm-hmm. Also, Vikings weren't a people. It was a, a, a job. <laughs> it was an occupation. Again, right. a lot of people don't know. Um, we now know that there was some sort of Viking influence in North America at some point that seemed for the most part peaceful. Uh, again, though, they're still doing research. So I don't know how far that really goes. Um, gotcha. And, you know, the Vikings are why the Irish have red hair. <laughs> In case you also didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I did know that, actually. <laughs> they, they brought that over. Uh, mm-hmm. The Irish were Celtic people. They had darker hair, surprisingly. Yeah, eyes. like my like my Gavin. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, the uh, the blonde and red came from the Vikings. They also uh, named Dublin, if I'm not mistaken. It oh, really? A, yeah. A so it comes from like word. a Nordic word. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like they got around. They weren't like all blah, all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But. In terms of our episode, that's what they were seen as at this point. Um, And (laughs) the image of Vikings was one of the most famous misconceptions, and I think it still is to most people. Um, The idea that they had horns on their helmets, which made a lot of people think that, oh, my God, like these were barbaric warriors to have horns (laughs) and all that. The idea of this was primarily due to costume designer. Carl Emil Doppler, who decided to put horns on the helmets of characters in the 1876 performance of Wagner's classic Norse opera, Bering des Nibel... Yeah, so Vikings didn't have fucking horns with helmets, or helmets with helmets horns. Helmets with horns. They had horns with helmets. I'm just imagining. Here's my horns. <laughs> and like tiny little miniature helmets just like <laughs> at the points. It's very hard to keep on. You can't run too fast when you're raiding. Oh no, my helmet. <laughs> my little helmet. <laughs> well, they definitely drank out of horns. That is what they did. But to me, that that's very like... Uh, Oh, what is that word? They made you like they killed an animal. They truly made use of every part. Yes, that a horn. Yeah. They're they're drinking from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's the most hilarious thing that that's where that's from. <laughs> yeah, just some of- dude that just like decided like this would be fun. And then everyone's and then like, oh my god, <laughs> it's real. The what were they calling him? From the the people that stormed oh, the from, capital, yeah the the dude with like the with the Thor with the horn helmet. He had like Thor's hammer tattooed on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's clear indication. I mean, there's a bunch of clear indications there that he was from the far right. But like that idea of a Viking, well, not actually into Norse paganism. Not. I don't think he ever said he was. But anyway. So moving into the 1930s and 40s, German Nazis continued to perpetuate these, I- 
these themes of who the Vikings were using iconography and images as part of their propaganda to create the historic notion of an all-conquering, ethnically pure group of powerful Germanic warriors. This portrayal dovetailed perfectly with Hitler's warmongering and genocidal agenda. In Nazi ideology, the runes took on an entirely new meaning well beyond simple characters for writing, which truly, as we discussed in the runes episode, most evidence we have of runes was for writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so every rune has its own meaning, as we've covered, as I'm sure almost everybody knows. And the Nazis believed that the meaning behind these... <laughs> Hid, was hidden in the soul of the Germanic people. How do, there's that romanticism. Yeah. They really, and honestly, it's like who, who wouldn't, like when you're in the heat of all that propaganda, who wouldn't want to be part right? of the soul of the Germanic people that holds the key that unlocks the meanings of these runes? And I honestly think this is why, partially why there are so many of these racist people within Norse paganism is because they begin to buy into, they come across it and they buy into it. That we're a special people connected to this magic. Hmm. Who's the snowflake now? <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> so some of the runes that they've used, one I think one of the most popular ones is the S rune or Sowilo, which looks like a little lightning bolt. Mm-hmm. That was used uh, most famously as like the SS symbol. Yep. And you'll still see that today. Uh, that's where that comes from. It was renamed as the Sigrun, the victory rune, and became the symbol, like I said, of Hitler's SS. Um, that's not what it means. That's not what it is. It's the sun. Um, and then there's the O rune or Othala. This is another one that you'll see a lot. Uh, it means it means a lot of things, but one of those is inheritance. And it was used as a symbol of the Blut and Moden, blood and soil. And a lot of times now, if you see it, it's the, the kind of O with like the, it goes up and the, around. And its little legs will have little feet. Usually, if you're seeing someone on the far right using it, that's what it'll mm-hmm. look like. Um, and then they also used the Tiwas, the T rune, as a symbol of war and struggle because it was named after the god of war. Not god of war, but yeah, god of war, Tyr. Um, and it also became popular in the Nazi youth organization, Hitlerjungen. So gross that that was a thing. Um, and then Rado. Yeah. Just like, you know, Hitler's arrest. Oh, of, God. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, That's what it, that was. I remember, yeah, I remember reading a, a novel about the Hitlerjugend. And mm-hmm. obviously it was historical fiction if it's a novel. Um, it's pretty scary. Yeah. How they influenced kids at a very young age. And what grosses and things that they made out, them do. Exactly. I feel like that's what people think schools are trying to do with like critical race theory and things like that. Without realizing that they're trying to do the exact opposite mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. that was. Mm-hmm. I, mm, disgusting. Super disgusting. Um. Anyway, uh, Rado, the R rune, became a symbol of either life or death, depending on whether the diagonal lines were facing up or down. 
And uh, there's actually a lot more examples of it, which if you um, go to, we'll tag it, but ADL.org, they have a list of hate symbols and they have examples and I highly recommend checking it out at some point because they do a good job, I think, of, you know, saying these runes are used, blah, 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 but also not everyone who uses it is racist because right because it does come from a historical exactly non-racist place exactly (laughs) like it was like literally just their alphabet (laughs) (laughs) it was and that's it 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 can make it hard to kind of decipher who in norse paganism is racist and who is not because there are people who are it's it's a it's a, a world of a little bit of both um, mm-hmm. I actually encountered someone, a creator on TikTok who I liked. They were Norwegian. They mm-hmm. were a Norse pagan. They seemed legit. Very. Um, they were a part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And um, I forget what sparked it, but then all of a sudden it kind of came out they were anti-Semitic. Then it was like, oh, yikes. Well, and that in a nutshell, is what Norse paganism seems to be today, is a lot of people who can very easily fly under the radar. Is that, is that your kitty? <laughs> yes. He also disagrees. That's gross. <laughs> <laughs> what a cute boy. Um, so that's, in a nutshell, the, the white supremacy Nor- pa- Norse paganism is essentially, we have a whole history that we can look back on that details why white supremacy is bad, everything mm-hmm. it stands for. And mm-hmm. it, Norse paganism just got really unlucky in getting roped in through men, let's face it, yeah. wanting to feel special yep. and romantic of their their background. And honestly, I mean, the Norse mythology kind of goes in hand with German mythology. Um, a lot of the people and beliefs kind of cross over if you go back far enough, which I think is partially why they took that. Um, but it's just fucking, you have to be so careful out there of who you come across because I, I feel like I've seen I've seen and heard from a lot of people who have shared that they're almost scared to identify as Norse pagan because of how many racists are out there yeah. using this. The connotation of it. Yeah. Exactly. And I think one of the best things you can do as a Norse pagan is know the history of white supremacy and Nazism. And I think knowing it can help help you identify that you're not racist and what to look out for in other people Mm -hmm. certain things that they bring up if you start seeing acronyms you've never seen before from a norse pagan look them up you can probably find them on the adl website um i know i've certainly come across a few and one of them i can't remember what it was it was like a norwegian something something she seemed super cool I looked it up and I was like, oh, no, she's a Nazi. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So, y'all, please check out 
adl.org slash hate hyphen symbols. Dude, there's so there's so many. I also saw Alhis, Alhis, Elhas, which I can't remember what they used it for, but it's like, what what did they not use rune-wise? I mean, fuck, they took the swastika. No one can use the swastika now. No one. Not at all. Not even the way that it originally was intended. Yep. Ugh. It's just... And I will say a resource that I would recommend as well. Um, She actually... I mentioned Jew Witch earlier. Um, She started a new page on TikTok called Exposing anti-semitism nice and i don't know like how far it's gonna go but she's pretty on top of things and she kind of uncovers some uh some stuff i didn't even know things that are called dog whistles uh the term Mm -hmm. ballpoint pen what yeah there there is a reason it is supposed to indicate an anti-semitic remark really yeah and that's this is that's kind of what I like. I I really think in Norse paganism, if that's what you identify as, even if you don't, it's good to be on top of those things because I think they they try to be really fucking sly, especially these days. Mm-hmm. Well, I just I remember you know learning about the OK symbol that people were like posing Dude, with in yes. photos, and that's and on like, here well, because now now I can't use the OK symbol in conversations. Like I'm okay now. I can't. I know. I, can't I try use not it. to. There's so many like because it's supposed to be like W and then P for white power, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I didn't even know that. Um, I also I happen to know. I don't think it's used as much today, but like earlier you mentioned racist skinheads. Um, yeah. Which if anyone didn't know original skinheads were not racist um there's actually something called sharps they were people they were like part of the punk community that were anti-racist and um there kind of became this culture with uh like if you had doc martens the different colored laces would indicate different things and if you were white or red basically indicated that you were a racist Yikes. I think I think red was specifically like neo-Nazi-ish and white meant mm-hmm. like white power. Ugh, and then there were good gross. colors too, but like that was a thing. Um, there's just so many little things out there. I have someone I went to high school with who off and on, I'm kind of like, what was that? He got 88 tattooed on his hand. Which, if you don't know, means Hail Hitler. Yeah. Um, she later tried to say it was for his girlfriend's birthday. That was the year she was born. Which I was like, okay. Uh, okay. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. There's been other things. But like those little kind of things that come up that it's like, I don't know. I don't know about that. Mm. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, well, kiddos. I hope was... you enjoyed this session in our ethical witchcraft classroom. It was a lot. <laughs> Thanks for hanging it in was there. A lot. Yeah, for those who listened to the whole episode, I'm hoping it's most of you. But yeah. um, you know, I think it, you know, as you said, I think it was very good timing with just like um, you know, what's been going on lately, as well as you know, Holocaust Remembrance Day mm-hmm. having been recently and. Uh, Honestly, just this episode, it taught me a lot 
Mm-hmm. A lot of it I remembered kind of from school when we learned about World War II. Mm-hmm. But so much of it, I was just like f- floored. Yeah. I think yeah. World War II and the horrors that the Nazis wreaked on, you know, Germany and just like Europe in general um, mm-hmm. is just endless. It's like infinite, especially when you take into yeah. account how it's um rippled to today's neo-nazis how it's still being used how there's this gross denial of it ever even happening Mm -hmm. i think that's what the ballpoint pen was supposed to it was something oh is it something about like holocaust denial i i think so i think I'm, I may be remembering something different but it was some i don't know i guess there are people out there who think that anne frank's diary was faked as a way to try and oh. prove the Holocaust oh, when like it didn't like the happen. Invention, the, because of the invention of the ballpoint pen, like they looked at her writings and it looked like as if it was made with a ballpoint pen. It's like, how could that be when ballpoint pens weren't a thing in the forties or something? I I'm assuming something like, it's probably the same fucking people who think dinosaur bones are fake. <sighs> well, we got those, we got the flat earthers, <laughs> we got, there are a lot of different groups out there that are just like, mm. um, yeah, not not to say that flat earthers are racist, but you know, just another group living a very a logical fallacy. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if they believe any of those things, it does make me question what they feel on the others because mm. I don't. Facts are facts i don't know have you seen a flat earther try to prove their point and actually prove that the earth is not flat and then they try to explain it yeah i don't know i don't know but yeah well um we hope you enjoyed this episode of us breaking our break yeah (laughs) ending our break Um, We're so happy to be back. Um, We appreciate your guys' patience and understanding during this, like, what, month and a half? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, a month and a half of us um, taking taking time off from the podcast. It gave us time to recharge, reflect. Mm -hmm. And speaking of reflection, um, really hoping that our Patreon members enjoyed the um, Witch's Compass that I published. Um, and if you haven't checked that out as a Patreon member, please do. It is published on there for you to use. Um, our next um, Cauldron Side chat will be us actually going through the prompts yeah. of the compass and kind of, you know, reflecting. And um, it should be a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're interested in Patreon, uh, that's the best, you know, one of the best ways to support us. Um, it really helps us continue to do what we do. Um, and it also gives you a lot of like bonus extras as a member. So you get, you know, for example, the Witch's Compass, but we also have our monthly bonus Cauldron Side chat episodes that are exclusive to Patreon members. Um, we also add you to our exclusive social media groups like our close friends list, um, our private Facebook group on well, on Facebook, 
and many others. So definitely check that out. Patreon.com slash the new witches. We have so many because we took a month and a half off. We have so many new patrons to shout out. We do. Uh, like I actually forgot about that. We have so many. We'll, we'll do it at the, at the beginning of next episode. Yeah. We'll make a note of it. Um, Obviously, you, you probably can tell, dear listener, that we're kind of dusting off the cobwebs <laughs> <laughs> in this episode. Just a little bit. Just a teensy bit. Um, but we're, we're really happy to be back. Um, our next episode will be um, spooky, true crime, mm-hmm. and paranormal. Uh, we do have some new listeners, and I know that sometimes they start at like the most recent episode. So... In case um, you are new to the podcast, we stagger our episodes. So it goes witchy, spooky, witchy, spooky. Mm -hmm. And the spooky episodes, we cover true crime. The other one covers paranormal. And we switch on and off. So we each get a a turn at either topic. Which Um, we have actually discussed. We were going to pull all of y'all and it didn't happen yet. But we had discussed possibly doing like one episode as both of us doing a paranormal story and both of us doing yeah. true crime. Like double whammy. If people are into that, but let us know. Mm-hmm. And um, lastly, of course, our listener episodes every 13th of the month. Mm-hmm. We owe you guys January. <laughs> yeah, we do. We owe you guys January. We will be doing a February one. It'll come mm-hmm. out on the 13th, on Galentine's Day, if you will. Yes. And <laughs> and um, we basically take your submissions and we read them, whether it's a question um, or if it's a story about anything relevant to the podcast, witchy, paranormal, true crime. Maybe it was a really weird dream that you had. Um, we're always looking for a good UFO story or mm-hmm. some sort of like alien encounter. That'd be cool. Um, And yeah, so it's good to be back. We love y'all. We've missed you. And we're so excited too for for the episodes we've got for the the rest of this year. I promise the next witchy ones can be much lighter. (laughs) Much lighter. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We we, we came in heavy. Yeah. (laughs) We came in swinging. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, everyone, you know, I'll do my outro. I already mentioned Patreon. I already mentioned listeners. Um, for listeners, if you'd like to submit a few ways to do that, you can email us directly at thenewwitches at gmail.com or you can go to our website, thenewwitches.com. We have a submission form on our contact page um, and you can type it up there. Um, you can also send it with a Google voice number. Let's see if I remember our Google voice number. It's been so long. <laughs> Um, it's a voicemail, go straight to voicemail and you have up to three minutes to leave your listener story or question, whatever, whichever it is. And it is 707-559-8111. Um, and yeah, follow us on social meds at the new witches pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, rate and review us on Apple podcasts and anywhere that rate allows you to rate and review us. I think Spotify is now allowed. Oh, are they? For- I think so. I forget what, there was some sort of big platform that recently finally like opened up you being able to rate and review podcasts. And I believe it was Spotify. Okay. I don't know. I'm an Apple podcast girl. So yeah, (laughs) that's where I listen to most of mine too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, we'll uh, catch you next time and uh, stay witchy.
keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.